0: Lord, we ask for your blessing on the word of God as it's read. And Lord, as I seek to clearly teach what you have shown me from this passage, I pray that it would be impactful to our lives, that you'd fill us with greater faith as we see what you once did and can do again, and that we would have great courage. In Jesus' name, amen. So the message, I, the message is entitled, The Folly of Fighting God. Amen. The foolishness of fighting against God. Isaiah 45.9 says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. That's what we find Herod doing here, quarreling with his Maker. He's not the only one though. If we go back in history to the Old Testament, we find the Pharaoh quarreling with his Maker as well. And Exodus 5 it says, Afterwards Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Well, we know the end of the story, don't we? Pharaoh tries to oppose God, but who won in the end? God is always victorious. So Pharaoh ends up losing his power, his throne, his firstborn son, his army, and eventually his life, while God ends up bringing his people safely out of Egypt and winning. We also find in the New Testament someone who we've just been reading about, Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus appears like a stark, raving, mad, demon-possessed person who's ravaging the church. It's like he's obsessed with exterminating and stamping out the church. But yet Jesus himself appears to him on the road to Damascus. He blinds him, knocks him off of his horse, pins him to the ground, and mm-hmm. says, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. Mm-hmm. And in the end, God won and Saul lost. God had his way. There is no way to successfully fight against <laughs> God and win, although people are trying to do it all the time. Yes, It may seem sometimes like someone is opposing God and getting away with it, temporarily, but that's the key word. it's only temporary. In the end God is going to be victorious. Yeah. Now in Acts chapter 12 we see Herod opposing God and God's people mm-hmm. and we see God coming out on top. Acts 12 is not really about Peter. Sometimes we make this all about Peter, but I don't I think it's not really all about Peter. Um, I don't also don't think it's really all about prayer, although prayer part forms part mm-hmm. of the story here. And I also think it's not all about persecution. I really think the contest here is not between Herod and Peter or Herod and the church. The contest is between Herod and God. Herod and God are the two primary players in this chapter. Their names appear over and over throughout the chapter. And we're going to see the triumph of God over evil men in this chapter. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison. And Herod is popular and powerful. That's how the chapter opens. The chapter closes with Peter free, Herod dead, and the word of God growing and multiplying. Everything has been reversed by the sovereign hand of God. So, here's a lesson. If you oppose God, you may win in the short term, but you will lose in the long term and you will lose big. But if you take a stand for God, you may lose in the short term, but you will win in the long term, and you will win big. Let me just repeat that, because that's a little hard to get the first time. If you oppose God, you may win in the short term, but you're going to lose out in the long term, and you're going to lose big. But if you take a stand for God, like I hope this message will encourage you to do, you may lose in the short term, but you're going to win in the long term. You're going to have eternal gains, and they're going to be big ones. There's really only two stories in this chapter. There's the story of Herod imprisoning Peter and how God rescues him. And then there's the story of Herod exalting himself and how God judges him. So Herod and God are prominent. In both stories, God comes out the winner. Herod comes out the loser. There's an angel of the Lord in both of these stories. In the first story, the angel of the Lord wraps Peter on the side to wake him up. In the second story, the angel of the Lord brings God's judgment to where he dies is eaten by worms and and dies. So let's take a closer look at this chapter and as we work our way through the chapter I'm just going to divide it up into three parts, Herod's design and then Herod's defeat and then Herod's death and I think those will give us some handles to work our way through the chapter. First of all, Herod's design, what was Herod trying to do in this chapter? Well first of all let's notice when the story took place. It says, now about that time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. About that time. Well, about what time? Well, chapter 11 speaks about Agabus the prophet who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. He delivered a prophecy saying that there was going to be a great famine. And we're told that it actually took place in the days of Claudius. So about the time that Uh, that was predicted by Agabus when this famine would take place over the Roman Empire. Uh, The events of Acts chapter 12 took place in about 44 A.D. We know that because that was the year that Herod Agrippa the first died and he dies at the end of this chapter. So this is about 44 A.D. We have the death of Christ taking place about 30 A.D. So this is about 14 years after Christ died and rose again. Not very long, still the infant age of the church. Now, who is Herod, this king? This can be very confusing because we read about four Herods in our New Testament. The first one is Herod the Great. Do you remember he was the one that ordered the slaughter of all the male born infants two years old and younger when Jesus was born? He was actually probably insane. He had several of he had all kinds of wives and children. He had many of them executed his wives and his kids. So, he, he was an evil man, as were all of these Herods, mm-hmm. as we're going to find out. The second Herod was Herod Antipas. And this was the Herod that was involved in John the Baptist. Remember John said it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife? Mm-hmm. And he, John actually lost his head because of that. That was Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Mm-hmm. And then Herod the Great had a grandson. And his name was Herod Agrippa the First. That's who we're dealing with here, the grandson of Herod the Great. And then his son is Herod Agrippa II. And as you read through the book of Acts, you come to chapter 25 and 26, and we're going to read about that Herod there. He was the one that brought Paul before him to hear his testimony, and he says, in a short time, you're going to persuade me to become a Christian. That was Herod Agrippa II. So we got four Herods. We're on the third one. That's what we're dealing with here. Herod Agrippa I. All of the Herods were Edomites. What that means is that they were descendants of Esau. Do you remember Jacob? And Esau were brothers. Um, Esau was the one who was not chosen, did have the special privileges, while he became the father of the Edomites. The Edomites practiced the Jewish religion, but only when it helped them to gain power and wealth. All of the Herods were evil men. They really were only concerned with their own selfish gain and power. Now. Why did Herod kill James and imprison Peter? Well, our text tells us in verse three, uh, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter. He he had James executed, and then he noticed, wow, that really pleased the Jews. I think I'll do it again. If it worked the first time, it's going to work even better the second time. So I'll arrest not just anybody. I'll arrest the ringleader of the apostles. You know, Peter was like they, he was looked to as, as the prominent apostle of the 12. And so I'll take him, I'll put him in prison, and then I'll have him executed, and then the Jews will really love me. You see, Herod Agrippa ruled over Palestine, and that's where all the Jews lived. And if Herod Agrippa wanted to be popular with the people he's ruling over, he needs to do some kind of a favor. The Jews hated Christians. In favor of the Christians, they were were opposed to the Christians. And they, they were even more opposed because they heard that these Christians now were speaking to Gentiles and including Gentiles within their ranks. And Jews and Gentiles had no dealings with each other. And so Herod Agrippa figured well, if I take out one of their senior leaders, that's going to make these Jews that I'm ruling over. Uh, much more favorably impressed with me it's going to give me status and popularity and power and ultimately riches and wealth and so i think that's what i'll do so he takes out james who is john's brother remember james and john were fishermen he takes out james he kills him he has him executed by the sword he notices how much he's ingratiated now into the favor of the people he's ruling over so he says I'll do it again, and this time I'll do it with a ringleader. I'll do it with Peter. But there was a problem. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that's taking place. And if he does it during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of the attention is not going to be going to him. It's going to be going to the feast. So he wants to wait until the feast is over, when people aren't distracted by this festival. and, And he can really receive all of the fame and notoriety for doing this favor to the Jews. So, he's waiting until the Feast of the Passover is over. See, Herod wasn't really anti-Christian. Herod was pro-Herod. It wasn't really that he was against the Christians. He was only against them if that allowed him to increase in his wealth and popularity and fame, which it did. And so that's why he was willing to kill innocent people Because he was a selfish, self-centered man who just wanted to be increased in riches, wealth, and power. He's not concerned with justice in the least. He's only concerned with his own selfish and proud purposes. And we've talked now why he didn't execute Peter during the Passover. Another reason was simply because it was illegal to conduct trials. Or sentence people during the sacred feasts of the Jews. So that was one reason. But the other reason was it would just, it was to his advantage to wait, where he could take center stage. So what is Herod up to? He's up to promoting and exalting himself, as we're going to see him do in the end of the chapter as well. He's seeking greater power, wealth, prestige, notoriety. He's perfectly willing to have him men executed in order to get these things. He's fighting against God and God's people. Now let's notice his defeat. And this has to do with him arresting Peter, intending to execute him after the feast is over. So, what does the church do when Peter is arrested and put in prison? Look at verse 5. Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Notice that little word, but Peter's in prison. but a contrast is coming prayer is being made for him by the church fervently to god so this is the the game changer everything is going downhill it's all going uh, in Herod and ultimately satan's favor until we find verse five the church rises up and begins to pray for peter in prison all things look hopeless and impossible from the human standpoint Right? There's no way that they're going to be able to break Peter loose from prison. We're going to see there are 16 guards assigned to watch over him. Four at a time. Six hour shifts. Four shifts a day. round the clock he had people he's, he's chained. He's bound to these guards. So it's humanly impossible for him to escape. But what's impossible with man is not impossible with God. Amen. Yeah. What could the church do against the armed might of Rome? Nothing. Well, there is one way. They can pray. When they have no power to change anything, they can talk to the one who has the power to change everything. And that's what they did. They prayed. And notice that prayer was not some kind of last resort. After they've done everything else they can do, well I guess there's nothing else. I guess they pray. You know? They took prayer seriously. We would probably be out picketing our congressmen, right, <laughs> or getting, uh, getting some kind of a, a survey sign that we're going to present as a petition, um, but they're on their knees. One author says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint on his knees. So here the church is, is bombarding heaven with prayer. How did they pray? Well, I guess we should notice first of all where they're praying. They're praying in... The house of Mary, the mother of John, this is John Mark, the one who ends up going on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. It's in her, John Mark's mother's home, and some scholars have speculated that this is the home where the saints originally met in the upper room in Jerusalem. They also think it may have been the place where the Last Supper was held in Jesus' instituted the Lord's Supper. Now these are conjectures, we don't know for sure. But they they see some some reasons to lean in that direction. But what we do find is that we, you don't find a mass church meeting of twenty thousand people praying. You find people gathered in this particular home, and I think there's probably many homes, maybe hundreds of homes around Jerusalem. Remember, there are thousands upon thousands of Christians in Jerusalem by this time, probably upwards of twenty thousand Christians. So. If the whole church has mobilized itself to pray for Peter, there's got to be hundreds of different locations around Jerusalem where the church is lifting up these prayer requests to God. How did they pray? Verse 5 says they prayed fervently. The word means earnestly or intensely. Literally, it means stretched out to the limit. It was used medically of stretching a muscle to its full capacity. So if the church is stretched out in intensity and anguish, Praying with a total effort for Peter. They were not nonchalant about this prayer. They were intense. They also prayed continually, it says. Prayer was being made. Didn't say they made prayer. Prayer was being made. It was an ongoing activity. Now remember, Peter was arrested during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you know how long that feast lasted for? It was seven days. So let's say that he's arrested on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After that feast is over, they were intending to kill him. So the church is praying. This this prayer meeting could have been going on for up to a week. That's the point I'm trying to make. It was being made. There was continual prayer happening for this. We also find that it was made specifically. They weren't praying for everything. They were praying for one thing. They're praying for Peter's release, that God would deliver him and save him. Praying for Peter. And then it was also hopeful prayer. Prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. If they're praying to God, there's always hope. There's hope that God can do something when there's no other way that it can happen humanly. Remember, Peter had been in prison twice before already. Chapter 4. Chapter 5, in one of those occasions, an angel of the Lord had rescued Peter and the other apostles, and so the disciples knew about this, and so they're bringing their request back to God. God, you did it once for Peter. You sent an angel to deliver him. Would you do it again? So prayer's been going going on. How did God answer their prayers? Well, let's notice it. Verse 7. Well, let's notice verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward. Let's just notice that, the timing of the deliverance. Now, God could have done this earlier (laughs) and saved the whole church a lot of anguish and uh, worry and anxiety. But he waits until the very night before Peter's going to be executed. That tells me that God's timing is not always the way we want it to be. But he's always perfect. And he's always on time. He's never late. He he accomplishes the answers to prayer when it is the right time for him to answer the time to do those prayers. So the church has been praying for some time, perhaps as long as a week. God heard, but didn't act initially. He waited and he waited. He waited until the very last moment, and then he acted. Now, why would God wait for so long? Why didn't he just do it the very first time the church prayed? I think it's got to be because he knew that this was going to bring the most (coughs) glory to himself and his saving act. (coughs) And God is interested in promoting his glory. That's one of his purposes in the world, and so he waits until it's the right time. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was, what? Sleeping. Sleeping. He's sleeping. Are you going to be sleeping? If you're in prison, you know you're going to die the next day. I think it's going to be a little hard to go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. But Peter's sleeping, and his guards are awake, because they were assigned to watch him. But he's just snoring away. And it tells me something. I- I don't hope I'm not reading too much in between the lines here, but it seems to me that he has a peace, a mm-hmm. supernatural peace from God. Mm-hmm. Even if he's executed, he knows he's going to be with the Lord. Right. But remember back in John chapter 21, Jesus told him that he was going to live to be an old man. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. I, I didn't recall that until I saw it. But in John 21, verse 18, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Perhaps Peter remembered that. Hey, the Lord said I was going to be old. And I'm not old yet. He's probably maybe in his early 30s at this point, I'm guessing. But he's not old yet. So perhaps that gained some confidence in his mind that, okay, the Lord's not done with my life yet. He's got a plan, so I'm just going to go to sleep. Somehow the Lord is going to take care of all of this. You know? So he's sleeping. Verse six. He's bound with two chains, probably one to each arm, and guards are in front of the door. They're watching over the prison. So there's a guard over here that he's chained to. A guard over here that he's chained to. He's sleeping. Then there's two more guards that are watching the prison, the prison doors. And beyond even that, there's a prison gate that is locked. So this is like maximum security. There's no way anyone's gonna break out of this. And Peter's not even trying to break out, he's going to sleep. And in the midst of all of this, verse seven says, behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And you wonder, Uh, did the guards see this? They were awake, they were watching Peter But it says nothing about the guards or what they were doing. The the whole thing is very supernatural. They appear, this angel appears out of nowhere. This light, it's not a created light, it's not a candle, it's not a lantern, it's the light of God, suddenly shines in the cell. The angel strikes Peter's side to wake him up. He's in such a dead sleep that he has to actually hit him to get him awake. He says, get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Now chains don't fall off, fall off people's hands. Take them off. You might have to get one of those grinders or something to get a chain off. It's all very supernatural. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. So evidently God had like put the blinders on the you know, these guards, or they were maybe just oblivious to what's happening. Peter's following the angel, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Maybe he was in such a deep sleep that he was like sleepwalking or something. I don't know, it's, but he, he doesn't know that it's real. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. Okay? That doesn't happen either. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. No further need for the angel. He's got Peter out of the prison. And Peter comes to himself and he says, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. This is amazing. It's a wonderful story. It's a po- It shows us the power of God. Yes. That our God is a God of miracles. There is nothing too difficult for him. Here's Peter experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. Um, there's an old story of a saint who's sleeping through a horrible storm in a boat and someone finally asks him, aren't you worried? And he replied, well, the psalmist said that the Lord never slumbers or sleeps. So if that's true, there's no sense in both of us staying awake. I'll let the Lord stay awake and just go to sleep. It reminds me of that, just someone with the peace of God. Now here's a question to consider. James was executed, but Peter's delivered. Was that because God was unable to keep James from being beheaded? Of course not. We saw it was humanly impossible for for Peter to escape, but he did because of the supernatural power of God. God could just as easily have extended the same power to James and kept him from dying. So why? And this, this gets down into some deep issues, doesn't it? Because we always We're always asking the Lord, Lord, why? Why did you allow that to happen? It's not like we're wanting to blame him, but we don't understand, we're confused. And we probably will be somewhat confused till we get to heaven, right? Because we don't see like God sees. But God could have stopped James from being executed, but he didn't. Did you know that God has not only chosen before the foundation of the world who is going to be saved, he's also chosen before the foundation of the world who would be martyred for his sake. We find that in the book of Revelation. There was a definite number of saints that were appointed. You probably don't. You're saying, Brian, I don't believe you. (laughs) Let me me show you what I'm looking at. It's Revelation chapter six. I've gotta find it here. Oh, chapter six, verse 11. It says, there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. There was a number that were to be killed like they were, and that number had to be filled up or completed. There was a definite number which tells me that God is sovereign when his saints die, especially those that are martyred for him. Uh, the, The Lord has a plan and a purpose for each death of his saint. In this case, he had a plan to glorify himself through the death of James. He also had a plan to glorify himself through the deliverance of Peter. And when it comes down to people living or dying, and we're confused and sometimes in anguish and great grief, we just have to learn to wait on the Lord to trust him because he will make all things beautiful in his time. It doesn't seem beautiful at the yeah. moment, but we just need to have great faith to trust him. If we know that he's wise, we know that he's good, and that that's enough. Those attributes will lead us all the way home. It wasn't like God fumbled the ball with James and scored a touchdown with Peter. That's not right. it. God scored a touchdown with both. Okay, so after Peter was released, where did he go? Back in Acts chapter 12, verse 12, it says he went to Mary, the mother of John Mark's house. And I really find this whole scene pretty comical. <laughs> because, well, let's just read really together. Many are gathered together, they're to praying, which tells me that corporate prayer is important, to church. That's why when we gather together, sometimes we have lengthy times of prayer. It's important for us to pray together. Now, it's important for you to pray on your own, but it's also important for us as a church to pray when we're gathered. So they're, they're praying, and when Peter knocks at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she didn't open the gate, but she ran in, and she announced that Peter standing in front of the gate. they said, Eric, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. (laughs) He's not there. He's in prison. So here they're praying. Lord, please deliver Peter from prison. Rhoda comes in. Hey, Peter's outside at the gate. You're crazy. That's his his angel. Lord, please deliver Peter from prison. So they they seem to have very little faith that God is going to answer the prayers that they're actually making at that very moment. Which encourages me because sometimes I think maybe my faith when I'm praying for something isn't that strong, mm-hmm. yeah. but God is not even bound by the measure of our faith. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he even told us that a faith the size of a grain of mustard right. yeah. can accomplish great things. So the amount of our faith really isn't the significant significant thing, it's who we have faith in, mm-hmm. the God who can do the impossible, and, uh, and His purposes. So, God could get Peter out of prison, but Peter couldn't get himself into a prayer meeting. He's out there knocking on the door. I can't knock too loud. Those Romans may even hear me and come arrest me and leave me back in prison again. Please, come on, open the game. So, it encourages me. Now, what happens the following day? Well, it says, verse 16. Peter continued knocking. When they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now, James was one of the key figures, one of the key leaders there in the church at Jerusalem. And so Peter says, I have to go into hiding now, but you tell James what God did. I'll surface later when it's safe to do so. And then he left, and he went to some other place where he wasn't going to be found. Now we find in verse 18, now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. Wouldn't you have been, like to have been a little fly on the wall, just to observe, (laughs) what's gonna happen when when those guards come and they start questioning the other guards about where is your prisoner? You know, where'd he go? Well, I don't know. I was, I was awake the whole time, and I didn't see anything, but you're right, he's not here anymore. <laughs> it's a crazy situation. How could a prisoner bound by two chains, sleeping in the midst of two guards, with two more guards looking on, inside of a locked cell and a locked prison gate, possibly escape? It's only the hand of God. So there we have Herod's defeat. God defeats him when he's trying To do something against his purposes, God overturns those purposes and defeats Herod. Now thirdly, Herod's death. This is the final story, and it begins in verse 20, runs through verse 24. So what's the historical situation here? We have people from Tyre and Sidon, which were two Phoenician seaboard cities, a little bit north of Palestine. They're right on the Mediterranean Sea. They had come down to appease Herod. You see, Herod is ruling not on the seacoast like they lived on. He's inland, where the this the breadbasket, of, uh, of where the food is farmed and grown. That's where he's at. These, these, these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, are on the seacoast, where it's more difficult to farm and grow your crops. And remember, there's a famine going on. Agabus had predicted that famine. It's starting to take place. The people are feeling the pinch of not having enough food. Herod is angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. We're not told why. So so for some unnamed reason, he's angry at those people. But they have to get into his good graces because they need food. And so they come from Tyre and Sidon. They come down to meet with Herod. Of course, it's not easy to meet with a king. And so they decide, let's get into, let's meet with his chamberlain. His name was Blastus. Let's meet with him, because he has an inside track to the king. He's, he was the one in charge of where the king stayed, his housing arrangements, those kinds of things. And so they decided, let's see if we can get in with Blastus the Chamberlain because then he'll put in a good word for us to the king and we can meet with the king and perhaps we can do something to get him to stop the with us and allow us to have the food that we need to feed our people, their entire insight. So they were intent on flattering the king, getting the on his good side. The most trusted personal servant in charge of the king's living quarters, that would be this man named Blastus. So, that's what happened. They were able to get an audience with the king. Herod then comes and makes this public speech before the people. We're told in verse 21, On an appointed day, Herod had to put on his royal apparel Took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a God and not of a man. Whoa. If you're the guy delivering that speech and they're all saying, You're God, you're not a man, you're God, you better watch out because lightning may fall at any moment. It's a dangerous thing to accept the praise and the worship that should go only to God. And he doesn't rebuke the people. He accepts it. He, he must have been a very proud, arrogant person because he accepts the adulation. Notice verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. <coughs> and he was eaten by worms of nothing. Now, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who writes about this occasion. And I'm going to read to you what he wrote. He says, Agrippa put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful and came into the theater. When the sun's rays reflected upon it, it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, that he was a God. And they added, Be thou merciful to us. For although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. A severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I whom you call a god am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away to death. So those are the words of the Jewish historian who records what took place. Now, you're probably all wondering, what does it mean that it says he was eaten by worms and died? Worms don't eat people. At least, I'm I'm not aware of worms going around eating people. What's he talking about? Well... Josephus says that he received a severe pain in his belly for five days, and then he died. So he may have died from intestinal roundworms. We aren't completely sure because the Bible doesn't give us the details on this. But there is a medical term called Ascaris lumbricoides. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Ascaris lumbricoides. And it's where these worms grow in the intestines and they feed on the nutrients growing there. Or not growing, but the the, the nutrients that are there in the intestines, they they feed on it. What's left in them? Yeah, what's left. And these worms, from from my from my reading, these worms grow between ten and sixteen inches long. Hopefully I don't have any of these worms growing with me. <laughs> um, Bunches of these round words can obstruct the intestines, like they can block it, causing severe pain, vomiting up of these worms, and even death. So, this must be an extremely rare situation because I've never heard anyone today who's died of this. But it appears this was a judgment of God upon Herod. And he came up with a very rare and severe judgment, causing him to die a slow, agonizing death over five days. Mm. Wow. Isaiah 42.8 says, I will not give my glory to another. Those are the words of God. God says, I will not give my glory to another. Herod tried to take something that God himself reserved for himself, and God said, that's it. You're dead. I'm taking your life. Herod began the chapter by fighting against God, by killing God's people. He ends the chapter by fighting against God, by stealing the glory that was God's alone, and God put him down. But notice verse 24. We shouldn't end before we see that. Here's a little summary statement. (coughs) But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. (laughs) So God's word isn't shut down by Herod's shenanigans. God's word continues to grow continues to multiply. Souls are continuing to be saved and added to the church. The Lord continues to add day by day to the church those who are being saved. The word of God is prospering. Herod can do what he will, but it doesn't stop the word of God from doing God's work in the world. The devil cannot win against God. Okay, so let's draw out some application from all of this. And I'm going to try to draw out Application for three groups of people. First, non-Christians, then Christians, and then the church as a whole. Okay, so first of all, non-Christians. Stop fighting God. That's the application. (laughs) Are you like Herod, fighting against God? You say, of course I'm not. I'm not fighting against God. Well, have you submitted your life to God as your Lord? Did you know that you cannot be saved if you are in rebellion against God? You had got to submit your will to Him. That's what happens when someone is converted. They surrender their will to God. Now, of course, it doesn't mean they live a perfect life from then on, but it does mean the direction of their life is to seek God's will and to do it by His grace. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to blow it. But yet that's the direction of their life. They become submissive to Jesus Christ as their Lord. Remember in Romans 10 it says, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Not as Savior. It is important that we bow the knee and the will to Jesus Christ and be a submitted follower of Jesus Christ. So if you are not that today, that's God's word to you. Stop opposing him. Surrender. Wave the white flag. Unconditionally surrender your life to him. What that means is you simply come before him with an open Bible and you say, Lord, show me your will from this book because I want to do it. And then when I'm weak, please give me your help to put the things that I'm reading from this book into practice. I want to do what you want me to do. that, that That's one of the marks of a real Christian. To oppose God is like throwing eggshells against the rock of Gibraltar. <laughs> yes. Does no good. The only one that gets hurt is is you, not God. You aren't going to hurt Him by opposing Him. But you will destroy your own soul and end up in hell if you oppose God. The only way to true happiness, true joy, true fulfillment, satisfaction, I believe, is in surrendering completely to God and allowing His Spirit to live through you day by day. That's where real life is going on. Real life is taking place. So there's my... Exhortation to those of you if you're not saved, only you and God know that. Surrender. Okay, Christians. Word of exhortation to you be encouraged in your faithfulness to God. You see, it's really easy for us to feel discouraged. In America, church attendance is dropping year by year, Mm -hmm. dwindling. Fewer and fewer people seem to be interested in following Jesus Christ here in America. The people that have all of the political and financial power are those whose beliefs and morals are opposed to God's. And I'll just come out and talk about it freely today. I'm talking about the LGBTQ community with their political power and the money that they have They are now calling the shots in America. And if you dare to say what God has said about human sexuality or marriage or gender, you are going to be a target. You're going to be targeted. You'll be accused of hate crimes, hate speech, and you'll be canceled, and you will be marked out as the object of the attack and the hate of the world. But folks, we don't have a choice about when, when people ask us our opinion. We don't have a choice of lying in order to get on the good graces of the world. We must we must we're God's messengers in this world. We've got to tell people the truth. So I'm old enough to know, to to remember a time when it wasn't crazy like today. So you young people probably you don't know any different. But there was a time when we were not insane as a as a country. We were, we, there, was a time, there, there was a time when people knew that if they were born a man, there would always be a man. They couldn't become a woman. And if you were born a woman, you couldn't become a man. You just because you identify with the opposite gender didn't mean that you were a female, if you were a biological male. I mean <laughs> I guess what I'm getting at is human sexuality. We have have the new sexual revolution. We are supposed to just simply accept anything goes anymore. We have new morality when it comes to marriage. Same-sex marriage is supposed to be just, that's the end thing now. We just accept that as, well, no, God doesn't accept that. God defines marriage as a man and a woman. God defines human sexuality as, that which takes place within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. It's it's not a man and an animal, or another man, or a prostitute, or a woman who's married to somebody else, or someone who's not married but it's not his wife. It's confined within the confines of marriage. So that's God's sexuality. God's views on gender is that he created male and female. And so we need to be content with who God made us to be rather than fighting that, okay? Confused and trying to switch sides. I know I'm not telling you guys anything you don't know, <laughs> but I'm just saying, let's not get insane like the rest of the world. The Bible is a very logical, cohesive, sane, revealed will. And so let's, let's embrace it. Let's be faithful to it let's let's hold fast what God has said rather than be swept along with the rest of the world mm-hmm. into this craziness sometimes it even makes me wonder if if we're in Romans chapter 1 where God is giving the people of our our, our nation over to their sexual vices as a judgment on America I don't know I'm it's just it's just things that I sometimes speculate on because I I'm wondering how did this happen? Hmm. It's, it happened at like lightning speed. Within 20 years, the yeah. whole country has it. gone nuts. Yeah. Right? Within 20 years, all of this has happened. Yeah. Yes. How can that possibly happen to sane, thinking, rational people? I don't know. But it has. Satan is behind it, I'm sure of it. So let's be faithful to God. Let's faithfully serve God. Even when we are the tiny minority and the rest of the world is the great powerful majority and they can stomp on us, which they will try to do if we simply tell people the truth, Mm -hmm. let's be faithful to God. Let's tell the truth. If someone has questions about what God says, let's not be shy about telling them the truth. So be encouraged to be faithful to God and to God's word. If you surrender to Jesus and serve Him, you win. Even if you lose now, temporarily, you're gonna win in the long term. Eternally, you're going to win. God's people have always been the minority in this world. In the book of Revelation, the Bible says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God just wants His people to be faithful to Him. That means standing by Him, standing by His word, standing by His truth, not switching sides and and being duped along with everybody else God's word is clear on the issues that we've been talking about yeah. okay thirdly the church what's a word of application to the entire church simply to pray that's what the church in Jerusalem was doing they gathered together to pray fervently to the for the uh, for Peter for him to God and so I want us to be thinking about times where we can pray with each other it might be, couple people that are in a discipling relationship, and maybe Sunday morning when we get together. It may be when you have a couple over to your home to have dinner, and you spend time to pray together before they go home. It might be when we gather together to watch a movie or have a blessing Sunday. But let's begin to think and realize how important corporate prayer is to the life of the church, and how God honored corporate prayer by doing a tremendous miracle to save Peter from a certain death when the church gathered together to pray. It's absolutely true that we can't convert a single soul, but God can convert anybody that he wants to convert. So we need to pray, we need to pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this wonderful story, this miraculous, supernatural story that we see here in the Word of God, and it encourages us to know, Lord, that there's nothing impossible for you. So we pray, Lord, you make us, make us people of prayer. We pray that you make us faithful to tell the truth and to tell people your Word. And I pray, Lord, that if anybody here or anybody listening in the future to this message is unconverted, Lord, that they would take to heart that they need to surrender their will to you. Lord, Would you cause your spirit to work in their their life and convict them? Even if they make a profession of faith, but they're living in rebellion to you, Lord, may your spirit bring them to conviction to surrender their life to Jesus Christ and walk according to his ways. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. amen.